Hello and welcome to this Owl Explains Hootenanny, our podcast series where you can wise up on blockchain and Web3 as we talk to the people seeking to build a better internet. Owl Explains is powered by Avalabs, a blockchain software company and participant in the Avalanche ecosystem. My name is Silvia Sanchez, project manager of Owl Explains, and with that, I'll hand it over to today's amazing speakers. Hello everyone and welcome to this Hootenanny. My name's Emma Pike, I'm part of the Owl Explains team and I'm going to be asking the questions for today's session where we're going to be finding out all about central bank digital currencies or CBDCs and specifically we're going to hear about the plans in the UK for a digital pound. We're recording today from London uh, where I have two brilliant guests, Jana Pache from the Digital Pound Foundation and Varun Paul from Fireblocks. So let's start with some introductions. Jana, do you want to start just by introducing yourself, uh, say a little bit about the Digital Pound Foundation and about how you started working in the field of CBDCs? Sure. So I'm Jana Pache. I'm the founder of Market Evolution, which is a consultancy specializing in uh, market structure, regulatory strategy and financial innovation. Um, and I'm also one of the originating team members behind the Digital Pound Foundation um, and now I'm an executive, uh, executive director and policy lead for the Digital Pound Foundation. So the Digital Pound Foundation, or DPF for short, was um, launched in 2021 um, as a sort of hybrid trade association at the think tank and we are a corporate membership not profit organization that advocates for the introduction of a well-designed digital pound in both publicly and privately issued forms in the UK um, so we don't only look at central bank digital currency which we'll focus on in this um, podcast but we also look at other forms of privately issued digital money, ranging from stable coins to tokenized deposits and tokenized e-money and various variants of all of those things. Um, and we also so um, advocate for um, a diverse, effective and competitive ecosystem for all of these new forms of digital money to coexist in the future and provide maximum benefit to the economy and society. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, Varun, over to you. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Varun Paul. I'm Director for CBDC and Financial Market Infrastructure at Fireblocks. Uh, Fireblocks is a technology provider uh, that enables uh, digital asset custody. And so that means we're providing technology to some of the most uh, important financial institutions in the world in their um, uh, journey to work with digital assets. The, the technology enables them to custody and transfer uh, any form of digital asset uh, really securely. Um, so in terms of my background, I spent 14 years at the Bank of England uh, as an economist, um, most recently working on things to do with the future of finance and the future of money, and as head of the fintech hub uh, on things to do with CBDCs and uh, digital IDs and AI. Uh, and so I'm taking all that experience um, to, to the private sector now working in Fireblocks to try and take the technology to central banks all around the world, uh, not just in the UK. Uh, and that gives me a really good lens on all the developments uh, in the CBD space, CBDC space uh, happening at the moment. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, so welcome to you both. Um, before we get into uh, really talking about uh, the digital pound, um, I think we it would be great if we could cover off a few basics. So um, can one of you explain uh, as simply as you can, what is a central bank digital currency? How does it differ from the digital money that we already have and why we need them? So a central bank digital currency um, has, has two core features. The first is it is a form of publicly issued money. So it, is, it represents direct claim on the central bank itself. Um, as opposed to commercial bank money or privately issued money, which represents a claim on a um, on a private entity such as a commercial bank. Um, so there are two main forms of public money available in, in use today. Um, the one with which we're all familiar is cash. Um, so a hundred pound, well, uh, let's say a ten pound note. Um, if you represents a claim on the Bank of England for £10. Although what that means in practice is a bit trickier, but £10 is £10. Um, 
And then there's also um, reserves held at the Bank of England, which are used for interbank settlement. Um, that's less visible to most of us, but actually makes up the bulk of um, public money um, in use today. Um, so a central bank digital currency represents a digital native form of um, central bank uh, public money. Um, and I think it's worth unpacking what digital native means in this context as well. So um, most of us um, will be transacting day to day using cards, um, you know, bank accounts, things like that, um, payment mechanisms that we tend to think of as digital. We no longer think of money as just being cash. Um, yes, it, it, it is digital. It represents, you know, movements and ledgers between banks and things like that. Um, and wheelbarrows of cash are not being exchanged at the end of the day between these banks. That settlement is all happening electronically and, and generally in real time as well. But the challenge with all of this um, infrastructure that exists today is that it is built on legacy assumptions and legacy constraints and a legacy model of money and payments that in many cases assumes at the end of the day that wheelbarrows of cash may be exchanged between banks. It's not digital native. And because of this, it's um, the infrastructure that we have today, whilst in some jurisdictions like the UK is very efficient and fit for purpose and has gone through a fair amount of modernization. Um, nevertheless, doesn't fully realize the potential of the technology that we have available today. And so new forms of digital money, including central bank digital currency, represent an opportunity to look at what we need as economies and societies um, in terms of money and payments, not only today, but looking into the future and into, um, you know, other technology developments that are happening and how this, um, you know, how money and payments might be able to support um, the transition to a more digital economy and things like that. Um, and also to look at the technology that we have available today and to build something that is truly digital native and fit for purpose and can provide a platform um, not only for payments um, and exchange of value now, but also for innovation in the future. Did I get that right, though? Absolutely. Uh, and the key summary there is uh, is the who's issuing is the most important thing, uh, as Jenna says. Is sorry, what was the most important thing? The most important thing is who is issuing the digital asset, the digital currency. And in this case, we're focused on the issued digital currency issued by the central bank. Yeah. Okay. And and so why is that? Why is that uh, so important? Is it because of trust fundamentally? Yeah, well, um, as Jenna just described, uh, there's a different in those different forms of money. There are different risks associated with all of them, um, and the central bank uh, is arguably the lowest risk uh, issuer of, of assets like this. Um, we saw um, even with the, the recent uh, banking failures uh, in recent months that there is a risk attached with with any financial institution. Uh, even uh, governments have risks associated with them. And so nothing is completely risk-free, uh, but a central bank is uh, supposed to have the, the lowest risk. So, so a liability issued by a central bank should be uh, as close as you can get to a risk-free asset. Um, and it comes with all that um, trust behind it, not just uh, because of the backing of the government and, uh, and then the nation state, um, but also because of the, the trust and credibility that's built up over, over decades, even centuries, when it comes to a central bank. And so there's also an, an argument to be made, which the Bank of England does in its recent consultation paper on the digital pound, um, that the, the existence of public money in, um, in the form of cash or CBDC in the future um, and continued public access to public money. So the ability for you and me to actually hold the CBDC and to convert seamlessly between other forms of money, like the money in our bank accounts and um, public money is actually fundamental to underpinning trust and confidence in the financial system and the banking system as a whole, because um, you know, without going into perhaps 
too much detail on, on the commercial bank money side of things. When you take, you know, a hundred pounds in cash to a bank branch, should you be able to locate one and deposit it into a bank account, you no longer own a hundred pounds. You have a claim against the commercial bank for a um, hundred pounds, but that is not backed by a hundred pounds in reserves. It's fractionally backed by maybe 10 pounds in reserves combined with some other asset, some, some other um, assets like loans and things like that. And, um, you know, a lot of prudential regulation and confidence and trust through the financial services compensation scheme. But it's the ability to then um, withdraw that into cash now and perhaps CBDC in the future, um, which is wholly backed by the central bank that underpins trust and confidence in that, in the workings of the commercial banking system, whether or not everyone realizes it. Right. Exactly right. So, and um, so you know, trust is obviously like a huge, you know, it's a really huge factor here. Um, uh, both the, the, you've spoken about, you know, the, the, the longstanding reputation of um, the Bank of England uh, and other central banks indeed. Um, what about the technology that underpins uh, a CBDC? Does you, you mentioned the word infrastructure? Does the infrastructure also contribute to kind of building that additional trust? Yeah, so I think the technology. There are a bunch of technologies that could be used, um, and the choices they make will be important for both how um, how effective it is, how efficient it is at functioning as a for delivering payments, but also for delivering trust and reliability and resilience in the system, and also about privacy. Um, so technology does matter here. Um, there, the, 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 the final bit about their choice, the technology choice that I think matters here is also how it works with the rest of the ecosystem. It's really important, I think, that... Well, let me go back a couple of steps. The central bank is... As Jana said, central bank here is issuing has a responsibility for the provision of money, um, it, and what it does in terms of its responsibilities today, it has a responsibility for uh, preserving the value of money, and it does that through inflation targeting, but it also does that through preserving the value of the the ten pound note in your wallet, right? So protecting that against uh, forgery, making sure it's highly secure. Um, it has that responsibility today. And in a future world where we're interacting with digital assets, it wants to have a role in the provision of money in the future as well. So given that it's trying, that is its core purpose here, and that's the reason it's getting involved in central bank digital currencies, it's important that, that the technology they use to create a central bank digital currency also uh, supports that vision. So that means it has to be interoperable with other forms of, of money. Uh, it means that it has to work uh, in support of innovation um, in the sense that uh, other technologies can innovate on top of it. It needs to be fully trusted and reliable and resilient in the same way that the money they provide today is designed to be resilient and, and uh, proof and, uh, uh, resistant to uh, forgery and so on. Um, and it has to be, I think in this case, it has to be future-proof as well. But it comes down to, can you trust that what the central bank is issuing, just as it is today, can you trust that it is uh, reliable and that it's resilient and it can be trusted? Um, and all those features would be really important and really important for their choice of technology. So there are a few choices. Uh, there are a few models that they paint in the, in the consultation paper. One of which uses um, pretty um, standard technologies that are available today. Uh, you'd, you'd call them centralized and call them um, API driven. Uh, nothing really uh, innovative or special about that. But the, the word we haven't used yet really is blockchain. And most digital currencies out there today are are on the blockchain, uh, are designed to be, uh, they use distributed ledger technology and they're built on the blockchain. And many central bank digital currencies around the world are built on that technology. In my view, that technology has matured hugely in the last few years and really is ready for the innovation of a central bank digital currency and gives 
the Bank of England in the in its digital pound the greatest opportunity to support the future um, of, of money and to support innovative use cases um, that will really transform the way we use money today. So building on that core uh, element of trust and reliability and resilience, um, they could build a digital pound uh, which has really um, neat function, neat functions and features that can be built on top of it. And that that's that's the really exciting bit for me. Great, thank you. Um, can you kind of build on that a, a bit? Um, just in terms of you know what what is it? What are the kind of the key uh, capabilities of blockchain that that make it so you know such a such a good choice? Yeah. So so for me, it's a lot of people talk about decentralization, and um, decentralization is a word that is uh, uh, and it doesn't make sense when you talk about central banks, right? These two things don't go well together. So some people say, aren't CBDCs the exact opposite? of what um, blockchains and decentralized systems are designed to, to create. And I'd say, well, if you bring them together, you get the best of both worlds. So building on blockchains gives you potentially a bit of um, uh, resilience from, from not having central points of failure. But bringing uh, that technology to a central bank means that you can leverage all the trust um, that has been built up over centuries, as I say, with a central bank. But for me, that is not really the game here. The real game is that you're digital first and that you're able to build um, smart payments. So programmatic um, uh, features in, in forms of assets um, that, will be, that will really facilitate the future of the ecosystem. Now, let me be clear, because the, the Bank of England has said quite clearly that they don't want to program in payment features for, for what they issue. They don't, want, they don't want the public to have to worry that the government or the central bank is going to force them and, um, to use their money in a certain way or stop them from using their money in a certain way. But the private sector uh, can, can create some nifty um, uh, programmable payments. For example, a really nice use case would be um, for an individual, can they sweep any savings they have left at the end of the month into a separate pot? and do that uh, in a way that is uh, fully automated. Can they have a way to make uh, micropayments um, so that they can um, pay per view of an article in a newspaper? Can we facilitate, for example, uh, the Internet of Things and uh, Web3 payments in the future? And all of those, I think, require um, a set of technology that is more efficient than we have today. It requires um, a degree of automation and degree of functional program, pro, programmability that, that can be delivered on blockchain technology. Um, and so that's the really exciting bit for me. Great, thank you. Um, so, so let's just have a quick whiz around the world then. Um, where in, in the world have they already introduced a central bank digital currency? Right. <clears throat> so, in we already have central bank digital currencies in Jamaica. The Eastern Caribbean central bank has launched one. Um, uh, the Bahamas and Nigeria. And we also have uh, a very well-developed pilot, uh, which is either live or nearly live in China. Um, and then we have a series of pilots happening right now in other G20 countries. Which I think are worth highlighting, and that's uh, I'd highlight India, Australia, and Brazil. But the ones that are live right now, the, the first ones I mentioned, so uh, Nigeria, Jamaica, uh, Eastern Caribbean, Central Bank, and Bahamas. And and I mean, I can imagine that the the, the motivations of introducing a central bank digital currency uh, might be quite different between some of those countries. I mean, you know the. Bahamas and China, for example, probably have quite different motivations. Um, can one of you say a bit more about that? Um, yeah, sure. You're you're quite right there. Um, 
the the reasons that different jurisdictions have for introducing CDBCs um, vary quite significantly. Um, and also the policy drivers that they have tend to influence their design priorities um, with respect to CBDC as well. So, for example, the Bahamas was the first jurisdiction to introduce CBDC, the sand dollar, and the big driver there was really um, logistical. So the challenges around distributing cash across ATMs on you know, several hundred islands, particularly during a pandemic, um, accelerated their exploration of CBDC to, to address those challenges. Um, others, such as the Inera in um, Nigeria, are focused on financial inclusion um, and an expanding access to payments and things like that. Um, Sweden, on the other hand, has um, probably of all developed nations, has experienced the most rapid um, and dramatic decline in the use of cash. And um, there, for the Rates Bank, um, the Swedish Central Bank, um, it's very important. It's an important priority to maintain public access to public money, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, um, and so that's a driver for their exploration. Um, the European Union is really um, about um, closer integration, about um, greater autonomy over payment services and things like that. So, a slightly more politically motivated project with. Um, again, slightly different desired outcomes and drivers from other jurisdictions um, and discussion of the digital euro could, you know, fill up an entire podcast again. Um, so, yes, very different motivations. Um, Cambodia, really interesting example, actually. So the introduction of the Bakong, which um, is technically not a true CBDC, but rather a synthetic CBDC for the purists out there. Um, was really an attempt to um, reclaim monetary sovereignty. So Cambodia is a heavily dollarized economy, and the dollar is used as a means of transacting day-to-day -day in many areas um, of commerce and stuff like that. And so they wanted to reclaim control of their local currency and encourage greater uptake um, through the introduction of um, the Bacom system. Um, and yeah, in in the UK um, and in, it, where we have relatively you know sophisticated and in many cases near frictionless payments infrastructure, um, the case if you take the case for introducing a digital pound purely on the cost benefit analysis um, again you know against our existing payments infrastructure there isn't much of a case for it and I'm you know happy happily say that um, the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee um, at the beginning of I think it was the beginning of last year wasn't it published their report um, on um, CBDC a solution in search of a problem um, and Unfortunately, the report only considered very narrowly this sort of um, cost-benefit analysis of a CBDC against existing payments infrastructure in the UK. It didn't consider um, the wider reasons for doing so, uh, both you know, in terms of what we've just discussed, um, continued uh, public access to public money underpinning trust in the financial system, um, the potential for a platform for innovation, but there is a wider geopolitical argument for why the UK should be looking at introducing a CBDC, and that is simply because other jurisdictions are. Um, if China is, you know, looking at introducing a CBDC and has a fairly advanced pilot, then yes, we should absolutely be. You know, if China was looking at, you know, a, a new variant of nuclear reactor or, you know, a new type of satellite, we would be looking at it as well. Um, and in a similar way, you know, the currencies, the, the currencies of the future will compete not only on their inherent value and you know the basic the counterparty risk sovereign risk associated with the issuing nation but also the functionality and features that they offer um, and so yes if the uk is to remain a leader in global stage especially in terms of financial services and fintech and to remain a hub for those things we have to look at providing the infrastructure that will underpin that yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, but I mean, I can also imagine that all of these, you know, these quite different motivations that you've highlighted across different countries um, is going to lead to central bank digital currencies actually being designed quite differently. You know, if you have different goals, then you're going to design your currency differently. Is that what you see happening? 
that's a risk, right? Uh, exactly as Jenna really well articulated, they have different motivations. And so if you've got a motivation to have a, uh, a central bank digital currency for the sake of inclusion, you'll design it in a certain way versus one that's designed to do something uh, for efficiency, for example. Um, but part of one of the biggest drivers, if you look at what the BIS has been publishing, um, one of the biggest drivers is actually to improve cross-border payments. That's probably actually one of the biggest frictions in the current financial system. And that's because of decades of innovation in different jurisdictions all going about their own things. And we've ended up with systems that don't work well together uh, or don't work at the same in the same time because of different time zones. And so actually one of the biggest things everyone's hopeful of is that using digital payments that do operate 24-7 uh, and can operate cross borders should try and solve this problem. Um, and so central banks around the world are speaking about this very frequently, and it is a clear goal of theirs to improve cross-border payments. Um, no clear decisions, I'd say, uh, on exactly how they're going to do that. There are there are a number of uh, work streams um, led by some of the BIS committees. Um, but it is a risk that you end up with more fragmentation. Uh, and so I think there's there's a whole wave of innovation trying to design uh, ways of uh, creating interoperability. Now, some would argue that there's already private sector alternatives to CBDCs that aren't defined by national borders and actually work better for this. Um, so when you've got a stable coin um, that can operate in any uh, across borders, maybe that is a better settlement asset for, for some of those use cases. And people use that today uh, to send money across borders actually much more efficiently and more cheaply than is capable uh, using the traditional traditional rails. Um, but I do believe that the central banks uh, will work together to try and deliver that interoperability between CBDCs as well. Otherwise, otherwise, I think we'd all argue they they'd failed in the goal uh, if they if they innovate hugely over the number over the next five years and fail to solve that key problem. We haven't really just sorry. No, I was going. We to haven't really. <laughs> there is a degree of competition then between <laughs> between the central banks and these private uh, stable coins. Is is it, do you sense there is a, is there a real tension between central banks and these other players? Well, I think you know if we go back in time and we look at where so, so some central banks were previously prior to twenty nineteen exploring the concept of CBDC. I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Bruin, but you know the, the Bank of England has started as early as 2018, or perhaps even earlier than that. Mm. Um, but I I think what really kind of galvanised many central banks was what was then Facebook's announcement of what was then Libra. Um, and this was for a number of reasons. First of all, the potential introduction of a very convenient payment mechanism that could be built into all Facebook-owned apps and things like that at the time and had the potential to be used, you know, to very quickly go to you know, global usage by two, what were two, then 2.3 billion users um, and, and basically take all those payments and take all those flows out of the existing financial and payments infrastructure, which is well overseen and, you know, well understood and things like that. That was reason one. The second was more of a monetary sovereignty thing. Um, again, you know, the impact of introducing this new high, you know, very much used payments mechanism on um, individual countries' currencies um, was another concern. And then there's another one, which was that Libra was supposed to be backed by uh, you know, baskets of currencies held in reserve if they decided to rebalance or liquidate or a currency that could, you know, have a serious impact on the given, you know, issuing jurisdiction um, because of the sheer size and scale of that Libra payment system and the reserves. So um, central banks had, you know, numerous sovereignty and, you know, security reasons to start looking more closely at both stablecoins and a publicly issued alternative in the form of CBDC. Um, but again, I think in the future, all of these things will coexist. Um, you know, as Bryn said, um, there are many different variants of these new forms of digital money. Um, there's stablecoin regulation in many jurisdictions is maturing, um, becoming introduced. And so stablecoin issuers will be more tightly regulated. Um, and stablecoins 
while they may or may not ever be considered um, on the same level as money, um, will definitely become part of that wider payments ecosystem. And there will be different use cases for which um, tokenized commercial bank money or um, tokenized e-money or stable coins might be more effective than CBDC in, um, in a given application. Yeah, I think that's right. And just to reinforce that point, I do think they have to coexist. Um, and I think they have different benefits because they're designed for different reasons. Um, in the absence of a CBDC, a stablecoin can, can do more. It can fill a gap. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing for all those use cases. Uh, but if they're designed well, I think uh, a system of central bank digital currencies, both retail and wholesale, alongside uh, a set of tokenized deposits issued by banks and fully backed stable coins issued by non-bank uh, registered payment institutions, for example, would be a really rich and diverse um, and resilient uh, payment system of the future, monetary system of the future. And I think that's where we will head towards. And it, uh, are there, so from, from the, going back to the countries that have already launched a CBDC then, um, uh, are there any learnings there in terms of adoption? You know how are how are consumers behaving? Have they all rushed to adopt this thing, or maybe some early adopters have, and others are slower? What are there any learnings, or are these economies so different that it's hard to actually draw any conclusion? I, I think there's definitely learnings to be had. Um, that if you look at, there's been a lot of commentary actually about these some of these early early issuing central banks and how they haven't reached mass adoption quickly. In fact, there were a lot of people saying they're they're failures. I think that's unfair because this is designed. To, to be a you don't want to rock the boat too too quickly in fact so you've got uh let's say slow adoption in in some of the um uh, caribbean countries um and part of the lesson to learn from that is you need to make sure a you've got banks on board and they're happy to issue or or receive the cbdc distribute or receive the cbdc and retailers merchants who are happy to again receive uh, this thing uh and and park it and then deposit it with their bank and that the whole system works. Also, that the population understands what it is and why they're being asked to use it and why it's different to what they already do use. But the flip side is, uh, you look at Nigeria and they came under fire for, for trying to push it up too quickly and then at the same time trying to uh, re-denominate the currency uh, to, to deal with um, uh, too, much, too much money circulating outside of the banking system. So they wanted to do both at the same time, force people to use the banking system more force people to use the CBDC more. And they almost went too quickly, too fast. And you had rioting on the streets um, a few months ago. And so it's really important, I think, that central banks do take this um, kind of cautious approach. They trial it out, they build slowly, um, they build a kind of adoption and they build buy-in with the public. Um, because actually the way we pay for things is, is a really important part of the social fabric. And if you, if you break that social contract, um, then you're in real trouble for the, for, for the wider economy. And, and, and actually, in many ways, China's done this really well, I think, because they've gradually rolled this out. They've tested it um, and it's reaching quite large scale, um, but they've not done it quickly. Um, and, and they did have already, um, obviously, they have different a uh, social fabric in China to play with, but um, it's been an, an example of how you can reach real scale with the CBDC without doing it rapidly and, and uh, mandating its use, for example. Um, but the lessons to be learned. So I think uh, for what it's worth, coming back to the UK, I think the UK's approach to do this uh, slowly, uh, to have a public debate about it, um, and to work with other central banks to make sure what they're building is not uh, built in a vacuum and to make sure it's built in partnership or in collaboration with the private sector that those are all really key to success absolutely yeah and to reinforce some of those those points i think there's often this perception that um cbdc adoption is all about the end user take up the consumer take up but as Baron said it's about creating a successful ecosystem around it so that the consumer at the end of the day sees CBDC or a CBDC payment 
as just one, you know, as, as the most appropriate choice for a given situation. So um, it's about having um, merchants um, and, you know, the ecosystem of payment interface providers um, creating novel applications and things like that and making it seamless and easy to use. Um, that will ultimately drive end user adoption. And I think also um, that we'll, the CBDC will ultimately be successful when people are paying attention to it, when, you know, I'm not thinking, oh, am I using my CBDC wallet or am I using something else? What is the nature of the money that I'm actually using? I'm just thinking I'm using the most appropriate thing under the circumstances at the moment. Like when I use Apple Pay, I prefer to use my Amex card and Apple Pay, but sometimes I have to use my Curve card because somewhere doesn't accept Amex. That's the most I think about it, though. Um, and it should ultimately be similar for CBDC. People aren't walking around thinking about the nature of the cash they hold or what's happening to the money in their bank accounts. And, you know, should they, main, should, should they still be confident in the banking system? Um, all this is kind of seamless, which we have the right legal and regulatory infrastructure um, around all of these new forms of digital money. Then I think we will reach that point where people are agnostic but able to benefit from each of them. So, so okay, Jan. I'm going to ask. So, the the, the Digital Pound Foundation campaigns uh, actively for a well-designed digital pound. Um, so, um, if you can, from a kind of consumer perspective, what does a well-designed digital pound? What should that look like? What are its key components, and how would a consumer um, actually use it? There are a lot of aspects to this. I probably won't be able to go into all of them, but. It, again, it's about that trust and confidence, um, regardless of whether it's public or private, the form that, the, that you know a digital pound might take, um, any digital pound, anything that is considered to be a digital pound, um, needs to have uh, you know a certain transparency of gov governance. So people should know, you know, people should be able to know and have confidence in what they're actually holding and who the liability is against in what recourse they have if something goes wrong and um, things like that. And that's where a lot of stablecoin regulation has been introduced to address, for example. Um, and obviously those risks exist to a far lesser degree with central bank digital currency. Um, they should also be able to know and understand how their data is being used, who's using, who's looking at their data, where it's being sent, and under what circumstances it can be accessed. Um, privacy is a huge topic. Um, in CBDC, and I think, you know, in the discussions, in the more public um, and media discussions around CBDC, it tends to be the top of any um, discussion um, because it is, it, it's, it, it's probably the most meaningful to most people, you know, is the government going to be able to see what I do? Are they going to be able to control my money? Are they going to be able to freeze my money and things like that? Um, a lot of these questions um, and, and a lot of the confusion that comes up around how the government or the central bank might be able to access data. And I should add, in the UK, the, the, the proposal is that um, neither the government nor the central bank will access personal data. All that will be held by the payment interface providers reflecting the model that exists today um, with commercial banks. Um, but obviously all of these are, are, are the biggest concerns and a lot of it I think is due to people not understanding how the existing banking system works right now um, and you know the fact that um, right now the commercial bank holds all of their personal data none of this is passed on automatically to anyone else but you know there are provisions for law enforcement to be able to request and obtain data subject to the appropriate you know due process being followed and things like that and that will be reflected in the future as well um so privacy um confidence and trust usability um accessibility i think um in terms of CBDC, so, so a private issuer might 
decide I am going to focus on certain types of use cases. I don't need to cater for offline usage or I don't need to cater for, you know, financial inclusion or things like that. On the other hand, when you're introducing the CBDC, you do need to think about how you want it to be used by the population. Maybe it is a lower priority to have, you know, everyone able to use it. Maybe you do still see, you know, cash being heavily used in certain sectors of um, society and you want the CBDC to be something wholly complementary to that. On the other hand, maybe you want uptake to be as wide as possible, and therefore you need to consider, you know, whether you're going to make it offline, um, available offline, how are you going to implement that, how are you going to cater for, um, you know, people who don't have mobile phones or mobile devices, um, and then the financial inclusion, which is a separate non-technical aspect. How are you going to, you know, develop a framework and market structure and regulatory structure that supports financial inclusion as, as an outcome? Um, and does it create the same barriers to entry as the banking system today? So lots of things like that. It's basically when we say a well-designed digital pound, we mean one that is reflective of the... Um, the values of the UK as a jurisdiction um, and as a democratic society. Right, yeah, excellent, thank you. Um, and so can you also just uh, explain where we are on this journey? You know, what, how far have we got and, and when could, you, could we expect to see a digital pound actually launch? Do you want to take this one? Sure, so um, we are on the journey in the UK um there was a discussion paper published a couple of years ago and a consultation paper published earlier this year and that consultation was closed and so the bank of england has said there will be a design phase now lasting two years it will take into consideration all responses and then at the end of that two-year period so we're talking mid 2025 they'll make a decision of whether or not to proceed with a digital power so still no decision on whether to do it but some of the seniors in the central bank have said that they think it's more likely than not. Um, if they decide to go ahead in 2025, I think then there's a phase uh, of actually implementing it and building it. So you could look at another two or three years. So we're talking about the back end of this decade. Um, but I think there's enough momentum behind it right now. Um, and I think... Uh, as we've discussed already, there's so much innovation happening outside of the central bank space that central banks all around the world feel the need to keep up uh, and innovate. Um, otherwise, uh, something that is core to, core to their responsibilities is being provided by people outside uh, of um, the central banking uh, space. And if you were guessing, would you guess that uh, they will go for a decentralized blockchain based solution? Um, yeah, well, so I think it, they're going to explore that now. For me, the most important thing here is that they are making the most of all the innovation that's happening in, in, in this in this area, that they are taking advantage of all, all the years of innovation that's been happening in the digital asset space, because as I said, that's when you get the best of both worlds. And I think there's many in the digital asset industry that would say, look, we've developed uh, highly resilient, uh, highly scalable technologies now, uh, both for holding, securing, transferring any digital asset. Um, and then you get all these extra functionality, these extra features, whether it's um, the immutability of a blockchain, um, the programmable payments uh, and transactions that you can build on top of that. And so my hope is that we will end up in that world. Um, and I, yeah, I think we, I think we will, uh, although that debate is still to be had uh, in the UK. And, and uh, I guess my follow-up question then is, you know, if we do end up there, even though you know, it's a few years away still, um, do you think that, or how significant, I suppose, um, a milestone do you think that would be in terms of blockchain and the whole crypto space kind of finding it's almost like the killer use case and and going much more mainstream than it has so far i think that will be the watershed moment in two ways it's it's not that people out in the crypto ecosystem are saying i hope that central banks do this because that's when all our coins will go to the moon that's not the way this works i think it's an it's a recognition that this is it's a validation, actually, that the innovation and the technology has has real value. And 
if it gains mainstream adoption, then um, we will see more and more, as we are, I think, now, actually, seeing more of the uh, utility of digital assets, not the speculation, um, but the utility. So when we're tokenizing real-world assets, tokenizing financial assets, and we have um, tokenized money um, issued by the most trusted institutions in the world to settle those assets, to, to transact in those assets. So I think um, it will be a watershed moment, but it will be less, it will, it will take the, the shine off the speculative side. And I think that's a, that's a, a maturing of the industry rather than uh, either a, a death knell to the industry nor a, a complete um, gold star or anything like that. So it's, it's a bringing the two together. And that's what I think is really exciting about this phase. Uh, this phase. Just can I just go back to one point you said before about privacy? Because I think in order to get to that world, which I think we're heading to, I think it's really clear, clearly important we solve this privacy debate. Even though the Bank of England was very clear up front about the fact that it's designing the CBDC in such a way that hardwires privacy, it ensures that the, the government and the Bank of England cannot see individual transactions. There has still been a huge amount of uh, nervousness about um, individual privacy. And I think that means that the Bank of England and the government need to go further, actually. And I think they need to say, we're not just going to preserve what you have today, but this technology allows us to be even clearer about it. And we can define it in such a way that um, it really does hard code privacy. And it, um, it says very clearly, these are the transparent rules upon which your payment provider or your bank has to monitor. But these are the clear rules and it's hard coded in that they cannot be read by anyone else. And we can use technologies like zero knowledge proofs, or we can use different privacy zones that protect in a, in a really rigorous way individual privacy and we can go further because we can have you know there's so much nervousness about uh, there was so much nervousness in the uk about national id cards for good reason people didn't want to be identified as a number and tracked but a a digital identity attributes framework like it's been proposed actually i think in my view gives more power to the individual to control the way their identity is managed it puts the onus on them and the management of their own identity in their hands and a cbdc alongside that kind of digital identity attributes framework is actually very very powerful for the privacy of the individual and so i think we've started that debate and i really hope that uh, we get into some of this and say say to the population look actually the way you are tracked today online or in your spending or the way you can be tracked by private companies isn't the way you want uh, the system to work. What you want is more control. And actually, we can help you have that, um, in part, actually, through delivering a CBDC that sets a standard here and sets the rules for what, what private, private companies can do as well. Yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like there's a sort of huge education uh, uh, endeavour that needs to happen, actually, uh, in order for people to get beyond these concerns. Definitely. And, and that's that's what I said. Lessons from around the world. Absolutely. Don't go out and put something out there and say, hey, go and play with this and see what you think. That, that won't work in this context. It needs to be uh, a journey that the public go on uh, over time. And people need to genuinely need to understand it and need to trust it in order for us to have all these these potential benefits that we've been talking about. So, yeah, education is hugely important. And and just maybe just sort of our final uh, perhaps lesson is is uh, could you say something about what's happening in the US where uh, the prospect of a digital dollar seems to have become particularly politically divisive? Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, I think in a similar way to what we just described about privacy, I think that's a key part of what's going on in the debate in the US, and it's been picked up by both sides uh, of the aisle, um, and. There's the concerns that they will, the government and the central bank will use as a digital currency, A, to spy on people, see what they're spending their money on, stop them from spending money on things they want to spend it on, all that kind of stuff. But actually, uh, it's not like the US has set up what it plans to do with it uh, in a clear way. So it's all speculation and it's all being used as a kind of, uh, it's hyperbole and it's, um, 
it's not really founded in, in, in much fact. So it's being used as a political football right now. Uh, that's that's a shame uh, for the development of, of CBDCs around the world, given that the US is going to be absent for the next year or two, no, uh, at least. Um, but if, uh, I mean, we could have ended up in that situation in the UK. Thankfully, the central bank here has been on the front foot and said, we're going to have this debate. And this is how we're, what we're not going to do with it. And we're not going to use it to spy on you. So um, hopefully the US will come out of that uh, in, in time. I think the US also has some unique characteristics, um, such as its existing payments infrastructure is already sort of cobbled together from, you know, held together with pieces of string and, you know, chewing gum and things like that. The whole state versus federal distinction as well. Um, so arguably on the domestic front, the UK, the US actually has a significant amount to gain from the introduction of a domestic CBDC, but also globally, I mean, with the US dollar essentially the world's reserve currency, with it being used as the currency of transaction in, you know, so much international trade um, and things like that, there's a huge opportunity there to maintain the US dollar's, you know, supremacy on the global stage as well, um, which I think President Biden did actually recognize in his executive order last year, uh, where he was, you know, asking Congress to look into a CBDC um, for the purpose of maintaining the US dollar's position um, on the global stage. Um, so there is that recognition. So those are really two huge drivers for the US. Um, and in that respect, it's um, it's in their interests as a nation to really, you know, tackle head on the public concerns and issues that they have because it's going to be so fundamental to their, um, you know, their ongoing abilities to remain competitive in the future. So is there my final, final question, because we really are, are running out of time here, but um, uh, is there a bit of a race on then between, let's just take the UK, the US and the EU uh, in terms of who is going to release um, a, a digital pound, euro, dollar first? I think we'll see the digital euro first. Um, the, the EU is very highly motivated in this respect. Um, and and the proposals around the digital euro are very mature. They've already worked through. The ECB basically can issue a digital euro tomorrow if it wants. It has the, it, it, it has the you know, legislative powers to do that. Um, already which has which are you know explained in the the digital euro proposal it doesn't need any additional enabling legislation in order to do that um that said the eu's digital euro when it ultimately comes out might not look like most people's idea of cbdc for various reasons um i think in terms of the us and the uk while it would be nice to be able to say that the uk will be a close second to the eu in reality i think it's going to be a kind of two tortoise race there <laughs> <laughs> the tortoise and the tortoise excellent um Lovely. Well, uh, thank you so much to both of you for your uh, incredible insights into this complex and uh, still evolving um, topic. Uh, it's been really, really interesting uh, talking to you both. And um, and uh, perhaps we'll have you on again as uh, as things develop further. But for now, thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed our Hootenanny. Thank you for listening. For more hopeful and hype-free resources, visit owlexplains.com. There, you will find articles, quizzes, practical explainers, suggested reading materials, and lots more. Also, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn to continue wising up on blockchain and Web3. That's all for now on Owl Explains. Until next time.